Wherever you are, open your Bibles to Luke 17 and follow along. This morning we'll be looking at Luke 17 verses 20 through 37 and the coming of our much-anticipated King. Luke 17 and beginning in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as in the days of Lot... They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray together. Father, again, we pray through the ministry of your word and spirit, you would enable us to behold more clearly the beauty, the glory, and the grandeur of our great God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of the work of your word in our hearts, would you cause our love for him to increase, our affection to deepen, and our longing to bring him glory magnified in our lives. Grant us that grace. Even now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us have already grown tired of the new norm. It's only been a few weeks, and yet we're weary of it. We we long for things to return to normal, for the stores to open, for restaurants to open, for Clemson athletics to resume once again, for people being able to go back to work And again, being able to gather together in this place with God's people. Or at a grand occasion, that will be. But it's not just recent events that evoke this kind of longing. Ever since the creation and the fall, we've had this sense of longing and desire for things to be restored, for things to be made right. Deep down, we long to live where there is no pain or pestilence, sickness or sorrow, disease or death. We, we want relationships to be restored, marriages to be mended. We want to see the curse which began in the garden to be reversed and for all to be made right and to once again live under the rule 
and reign and blessing of God the King. It's this inner longing that have made things like C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia and J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings so attractive to so many people. Whether it's the introduction of Aslan or The Lion, The Witch of the Wardrobe, The Last Battle, or whether it's the return of the king in the trilogy. Deep down, we want to live where the curse is reversed, where righteousness is restored, and where the blessings of the king flow uninterrupted. And so did the people of Jesus' day. They longed for that as well. They had, you see, read of a coming king, a conquering king. They looked forward to him with anticipation. So the burning question of the religious leaders was when? When will the king come? Will, will the kingdom be restored? And Jesus reminds them and reminds us in this interaction that the kingdom of God is coming, but in a manner somewhat unexpected. The Pharisees and the people of Jesus' day expected a Messiah king who would come and establish his rule and his reign throughout all of Israel and grant them victory over all of their enemies. But everywhere they looked, they saw just the opposite. They felt Roman oppression. They saw Roman soldiers, Roman culture, Roman coinage, Roman taxation, Roman rule. So when... When will the kingdom come and free God's people? And Jesus tells them that the kingdom of God is going to come, but not as they first expected. The Pharisees were longing for the kingdom to come in by military might and political power and a conquering king to throw off the shackles of Rome. But it was not going to come in that expected way. It's going to come in an unexpected way. In fact, Jesus said, in answer to when, he really answered with a where. That the kingdom of God is in your midst. What did he mean by that? The scriptures had promised the coming conquering king, but it also taught that he must first arrive as a humble servant. And Jesus is declaring, I am that humble servant in your midst. So Jesus is declaring that, that I am standing in front of you. The Pharisees just couldn't wrap their theological minds around such a concept. That the king of glory, that the creator of the universe coming as a serf, coming as a humble servant. They, they couldn't imagine what Isaiah had seen both in the beautiful vision of Christ in chapter 6, but the humble servant in chapter 53. They didn't understand the principle of the now and the not yet. That right now, at the very moment, the, the king of glory was in their midst, but he would not be fully manifested, not yet, not till much later. There will be a day when he'll come and the lightning will flash the night sky, but he must first, verse 24 and 25, he must first suffer. And it's during that time between the cross and the crown that we find ourselves living. The king has come. He's given us a taste of what that kingdom will be like. Just a taste now. But the feast will not come until much later. It's not yet here. And with that correction of their expectation, Jesus now gives two 
further corrections or warnings, if you will. First, he tells them the kingdom of God is going to come in ways not easily observed. They were expecting the lightning at first. They were expecting riding on the wall and riding in the sky. But he didn't come that way. He came quiet, subtle, in an almost unnoticeable way. A babe born in Bethlehem to an impoverished couple from Nazareth, the son of a carpenter who later grew to be a carpenter posing in the eyes of the religious leaders as an uncredentialed itinerant preacher who would be later falsely condemned and crucified on a cruel Roman cross. The Prince of Glory came dressed as a pauper, not easily observed. And so the king was standing in their midst and yet they failed to see him. But a second warning was that the kingdom of God is coming in ways that cannot easily be predicted either in verses 22 and 23. Jesus warns of false prophets, of impostors and impersonators who will say, look there, look here, here he is. And Jesus says, do not go out. Do not follow them. After the resurrection, his disciples were asking the same question of of when. In Acts chapter 1 we read, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Early in Matthew, it's recorded of Jesus saying, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels or heaven or the Son, but the Father only. And yet, despite Jesus saying, these things are not for us to know, inquiring minds still want to know. And there are plenty of people who claim to know so. I have no doubt that I could write a book entitled Israel, COVID-19, and the Coming of the King and probably sell a million copies. Now, if I wrote a book like that, let me say one thing about it. Don't buy it. Jesus is warning against such speculation. Like so many, the Pharisees were concerned with signs and times and when, but they neglected the who. They were enamored with the coming of the kingdom, but they missed the king. That, I believe, is one of the reasons Jesus in this passage refers to himself as the Son of Man. You see, throughout Israel's history, they knew that the Son of Man was central to the coming of the kingdom. And so four times Jesus refers to himself as this in this passage. It appears to be his favorite self-designation in all the Gospels, recorded some 80 times in the Gospels. And it's a loaded title. Any Jewish person of that day would have understood just how loaded that title was because it came from Daniel chapter 7. The prophet writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And we're told here in this passage that the Son of Man 
the Son of God, the Messiah King Himself, one day would come in glory and splendor and will rule and reign over all nations. And by referring to Himself as the Son of Man, Jesus was making it unmistakably clear that He was that Son of Man. That He was that glorious One prophesied through Daniel. Centuries later, the Apostle John would catch a glimpse of the glorified Christ in heaven and would say the same of Him. It's almost a repeat of Daniel 7, of the glory and splendor and beauty and honor of Christ the King. And He's standing right in their midst. So why didn't they recognize Him? In part because they expected a completely different kind of king not one who first came as a servant. They didn't understand the now and the principle of the not yet, that somehow they were going to live between the coming of a servant and then later the conquering of a king. But perhaps there's another reason they didn't recognize him. Maybe you've seen a commercial too or an episode of the TV show Undercover Boss where a boss or a CEO of a company or a major corporation dresses as a new employee He comes alongside them, begins to mingle with them, and acts like he doesn't really understand what's going on. And the boss or the CEO is right in their midst, and they don't recognize him. That's part of what's taking place here. The king of glory has disguised himself as a humble servant. Charles Wesley understood something of that nature of the incarnation when he wrote those wonderful words of that Christmas hymn, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn, what? King. Listen to the third verse. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. That's who before is before the Pharisees. Emmanuel, God Himself with us. The King of glory veiled in human frailty right in their midst. And of course, ultimately, the reason they could not see Him was because of their unbelief. It's interesting in the book of Revelation that we're told Jesus continues to walk in the midst of the lampstands The lampstands in chapter 2 and chapter 3 refer to His churches. That Jesus continues to dwell in the midst of His church. And I wonder if for some of these very same reasons, you and I may not always recognize Him in our midst. In the third verse of Charles Spurgeon's communion hymn, Amidst us, our beloved stands. Spurgeon causes us and encourages us to sing this prayer. If now with eyes defiled and dim, we see the signs but see not Him. Oh, may His love the scales displace and bid us see Him face to face. When God by His Word and Spirit enables us to see Him, our worship will never be the same. For now, we do not see Him physically, but one day we will. 
One day he will split the sky and come again and be revealed in glory like a bolt of lightning accompanied by the thunderous applause of heaven. The Son of Man will come in power and glory and splendor for all to see and he will at that time forever establish his kingdom. And so in light of the King, in light of the coming of his kingdom, how now shall we live? That's the question. That's the so what of this passage of Scripture. In verse 22, Jesus said, The the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. That is, one of the days of His glory. And you will not see it. What did He mean? After His ascension, we are going to live between the now and the not yet. And we're going to long for His appearing. We're going to long to catch a glimpse of just one of His days. So magnificent and beautiful will just one day be. We'll long for it. But during the now and the not yet, during this interim, we will not see it. You see, we live between the times of the now and the not yet. Between the cross and the crown. Between the first advent of the King and the second. And there's a longing in our hearts as we live in the interim, because it's filled with difficulties and challenges. Later in chapter 21, Jesus will speak of great earthquakes and famines and, yes, pestilence. Things like COVID-19 and all kinds of other sickness and illness and disease. We're going to study that more when we get to chapter 21. But for now, it's enough for us to know. Jesus says, you're going to long for the day, but in the interim, there are going to be difficulties. There are going to be challenges. But at the end of that interim, chapter 21, verse 27, then we will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of power and great glory. So what will that day of great glory, that day of appearing, look like? What will it be like? Paul describes it. In his letter to the Thessalonians, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal judgment away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, And to be marveled at among all those who believe. My friends, Scripture is abundantly clear. Upon His return, upon the coming of the King, there will be great judgment. A judgment that is swift and sudden as lightning. It will be unexpected just as in the days of Noah. Just in the days of Lot. As they're going about their merry way, life was just everyday business as usual, living self-absorbed lives, oblivious to the coming of the judgment of the king. And not only will it be swift and sudden and unexpected, it will be decisive. Jesus said there'll be two in bed, one taken, the other left. There'll be two in the the loom uh, working together and grinding the the grain and one's taken the other left some of the manuscripts say there'll be two in the field one taken and the other is left what's the difference in the one taken to be with Christ and the other left it is one trusted in Christ and the other did not but did you notice where they will be left 
Jesus says they'll be left to the vultures, to the birds of prey. This is a biblical allusion to devastation and destruction and judgment. What was the difference in the two? One had an advocate before the throne of judgment. The other had rejected that advocate and decided to reject and foolishly defend themselves. What's Jesus' point in this? The return of the Son of Man in judgment will be swift and unsuspected and decisive and irrevocable. Tragically, this judgment will forever sever even the closest of human bonds in this life. And please, please keep in mind, these are not the words or the warnings of some deranged last day's prophet with sign in hand screaming at the top of his lungs on a street corner. These are the words of Jesus, of the Son of Man Himself. And so since this is true, since everything that He said will happen, how now shall we live in light of the coming King? Or in the words of Peter in his second letter, what sort of people ought we to be? Let me briefly draw just several applications that come from our passage this morning as we live between the now and the not yet, between the cross and between the crown. First, you and I must be personally prepared for the return of the King. And there's only one way to do so, and that is to flee the wrath to come into the open arms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, trusting the one who first came to suffer and to die on the cross to pay the penalty and the guilt of our sin and shame, to bear that judgment that we deserve. And if you turn to Him and trust in Him and rely upon Him, then you have no fear of that day to come when the sky will be split in glory and splendor and Christ will return. For you will be able to sing with confidence even until that time when He shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Such is the hope we have if our trust and reliance is in Christ. Can you say that with assurance when He shall come with trumpet sound? Can you sing it with joy? You and I I must first be prepared for the coming of the King by His grace through faith in Him. Second, the people in Noah's day and the people in Sodom in the days of Lot were living godless lives which evoked the judgment of God. And so Peter, when he asked that question in 2 Peter chapter 3, what kind of people ought we to be? He went on to answer that question. We ought to live holy and godly lives, waiting for and anticipating and promoting and hastening the coming of the day of God. And today, even though we live in a culture that has long forgotten holiness and godliness, Jesus calls us by His grace and empowers us by His Spirit of holiness to seek to live lives that are distinctly different from our culture, 
Lives that are set apart by His grace and for His glory. What kind of people ought we to be? Holy, godly, anticipating, longing for the return of the King. And third, not only were the people of old in the days of Noah and the days of Lot obstinate concerning holiness, they were also oblivious concerning judgment. Jesus said that they were just going about their everyday business. Not much different than many people today. They were living lives consumed with eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage and raising a family and working and buying and selling and planting and building. Not that any of these things are wrong, but evidently these things consumed their lives. They were building their own little kingdoms, self-absorbed in what they saw as their hopes and dreams and aspirations for themselves, all to the neglect of the king, all to the neglect of his kingdom. And yet in contrast, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, but seek first, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things that the world pursues so much in vain will be given to you as well. Whatever our hopes and dreams and aspirations are, they must all be wrapped up in this one consuming thought. What in my life will most honor the king and be used of him to promote his kingdom? What will most honor him in my singleness? What will most honor him in my marriage? What will most honor him in my parenting and raising a family what most will most honor him in my vocation what will most honor him and promote his kingdom and the resources and gifts that he has so lavished upon us as his people that may look different in all of our lives because our our gifts are so different our callings are different but one thing is sure if you and i have seen the king as did isaiah If you and I have seen the King, then we will have a vision for His kingdom. There will be coming increasingly in us one holy passion. Life for you and me, unlike the people of old, will never simply be business as usual. For we've seen the King. We have in the gospel beheld His beauty and His glory and His grace. And life will not be able to remain the same. Let me say one other thing about seeing the king and beholding the king and and trusting the king. On another side note, there's a lot to be anxious about in many respects these days. Anxiety and worry and concern, as my mother used to call it, I don't get anxious, I'm just concerned. There's much to be concerned about in our day. Isn't it interesting That in the context of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus said, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. It is in the context of a portion of Scripture that uses the word worry or anxiety more than any other place in all of Holy Scripture. What is Jesus driving home in the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew 6? What is He trying to teach us? It is this. Our reliance upon this king, or lack thereof, can either be the cause of, 
or the cure for much of our anxieties. Let me encourage you again. In these anxious, difficult days, to lift your eyes, to behold the one who is still enthroned in glory, to trust him, to entrust your life, your resources, your present, and your future to a king who promises provision and peace to those who look to him even in these uncertain times. Fourth, because Jesus is the Son of Man, the King of kings and Lord of lords, there's really only one reasonable response to Him as well. Not only entrusting ourselves to Him, but bowing before Him as the King in humble submission and loving obedience. As we've seen before throughout the Gospels, this willingness to bow our hearts and our heads before Christ the King is evidence of a renewed heart, of being born again, of being in love with the King of glory and the King of grace. Some professed believers, I fear, much more like Lot's wife. Her feet were forced to leave the city of destruction, but her looking back indicated her heart had never left. Oh, may Christ the King subdue our wandering hearts Subdue our stubborn and rebellious hearts and grant us grace to long to love Him and honor Him and serve Him with a greater affection than what we once had regarding the things of this world. And finally, let me end on one other note in light of the coming of the King and of the Kingdom. And that is finally, live as people of hope. There, there is much in this fallen world over which to be concerned and even discouraged, but never forget Christ remains enthroned. He wears the real corona, the real crown. He is the ruling and reigning king, and history is heading somewhere where we as Christians know that. While the world may be wringing their hands in fear and frustration, we know something. We know the big picture of Scripture beginning in Genesis from creation and fall to redemption and one day consummation. My friends, the King is coming in all of His glory and honor and He will right all wrongs. He will reverse the curse. He will establish His kingdom for all eternity as He establishes the new heavens and the new earth. But in the meantime, we live right now today between the now and the not yet between the cross and the crown, between His first advent and His second. But we know something. There is a crown. There is a second coming. We are the people of hope. Please, please do not lose sight of the King. Do not lose hope and the hope of glory to which He has called you and called me. My friends, the days are difficult, but the King is coming, and you can bank your life on that hope of glory. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that 
the reality of the return of the King would grip our hearts that life for us would not be the same. That we would, by Your grace, look to You and trust in You alone for our salvation. That we would long to seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness simply because our love for You by the work of Your Spirit is surpassing our old love of the things of this world. We pray that You would implant within our heart and emblazon upon our hearts hearts of holiness and righteousness and of godliness, longing to live for Your honor, for Your glory. Grant us hearts, we pray, that willingly bow in humble submission and loving obedience to You, O King. And finally, would You enable us to live as a people of hope, to never lose sight of that hope of glory in the coming King, that hope of glory to which we have been called. Enable us, even as we conclude, to rejoice. Why? For the Lord is King, and that King is coming. For this we give you thanks, we give you praise. In the name of that coming King, the Lord Jesus Himself. Amen.